Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 111th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jim Stackpole. Jim is the founder of Certainty Advice Group, a practice management consulting firm for financial advisors based in Australia. What's unique about Jim, though, is his particular focus on how to price and demonstrate the value proposition of what he calls non-product-based financial advice which is increasingly relevant as fiduciary regulation continues to crop up both here in the U.S. and especially in Australia. In this episode, we talk in depth about how to think about the true value of financial advice, how the expert value of the advisor themselves should be distinct from the products we implement, just as every surgeon uses a scalpel, but the value of the surgeon is not measured in scalpels. Why the value of advice is not merely tied to a goals-based conversation, but must tie to their real-world complexities. And why, in the end, we should focus more on the enduring value, or what Jim calls the profound value of financial advice that can have material, life-changing impacts for clients. We also talk about how to know whether your advisory services are currently priced appropriately, why it's actually a problem if you get too many people saying yes to your advisory fee pricing, how even on renewal, you should consider raising advisory fees to elevate the business and the work it does with clients, even if you lose a few along the way. And why the AUM model does perhaps have it easier than other pricing models, since fees tend to naturally lift with the growth of the markets. But even under the AUM model, it's still necessary to be reinvesting into your own value proposition to clients, where eventually your fees will naturally drift so high that clients may no longer be willing to pay them. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jim shares some perspective on the fiduciary regulation changes underway in Australia, where regulators have been even more aggressive in calling out the financial services industry's worst practices, in what may culminate in a total breakup of Australia's wirehouse equivalents and a rapid explosion of the Australian independent advisor, akin to the IBD and RA movements here in the U.S., which raises interesting questions about whether U.S. regulators may also someday become similarly aggressive towards the vertically integrated product distribution model here, too. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jim Stackpole. Welcome, Jim Stackpole, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to today's podcast because as as some astute listeners may have noticed in just your, your welcome and introduction there, uh, you have a bit of an accent. You are a practice management coach for advisors from Australia. And I, I think the our, our first time in having a international guest mm. talking a little bit about what financial advisor businesses look like elsewhere in the world. You know, as, as we're going to talk about today, uh, Australia, I think, in, in many ways mirrors the financial advice world here in the U.S. There are a couple of countries around the world that have kind of evolved similar systems, Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., uh, the U.K. But, you know, your uh, kind of regulatory ecosystem looks a little bit different than ours. It's had an immense amount of change over the past couple of years. You know, we have been fighting over fiduciary rules here in the U.S. for the past well, about nine years now since the Department of Labor first proposed a rule in 2010. 
you've had your own version of regulation there, and most of it is, has happened. It's been implemented. It's been rippling through the system. I know you're now going through the second round of regulatory changes. And so I think it, it, it gives an interesting glimpse of what fiduciary regulation may look like in our future to see how it's playing out mm-hmm. there and, and all the unintended consequences or, or maybe intended consequences from some of your regulators of, of how that regulation is rippling through and starting to really change the financial advisor landscape there. So I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited to talk regulatory change and industry change. And, and I think what the question it ultimately raises for everyone on the other side, which is what the heck does an advice business look like on the other side of all this regulatory change? And how do you explain the value of advice, which is, you know, when you take away all the products and all the rest, like surprisingly hard just to explain what's the, what's the value of that ephemeral advice thing that we all struggle with. And I know you've spent a lot of time on. Yeah. And, and I think it's important for listeners to understand that I myself have always been a consultant to advisors. I've never been an advisor. But for the past 26, 27 years here, we've worked with great advisory firms who have been predicting probably the current state of the market here in Australia and how it's been changing. And um, in some ways, everything old is new again. It's, it's simply just focusing clearer and clearer on the value of the advice the client receives. And even that question you just put there, it's almost impossible for an advisor to articulate the value they deliver because it always comes from the client. And so one of our our advisory firms we work with here, they're very, very good each year at identifying the value that the client's seeking, and that's their value proposition. They can talk about what they do, but really the value of why the client pays their retainer, as, and we'll talk about, I'm sure, all our clients are, are using retainer fees. The client, the, the value they put towards that fee, whatever it might be, $1,000 or $100,000, is based on the value that the client is seeking. And so the client gives you the value proposition every year. Which to me in and of itself is an an interesting framing, right? Just to say the 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 value of the advice comes from the client. And I feel like to some extent that's sort of like intuitively, well, well yeah, of course. Like I, I I gave them advice on implementing this product and they saved some dollars and you know and that was their benefit or I I, uh, I gave them advice about making this change and here's how much they saved in taxes. But I I, I think you're 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 talking about something a little more fundamental in how value is perceived than just like I can do the math on my client's balance sheet and see how much financial impact it had on the yeah. client. So we, we talk about that's expert value. And so just like I expect my surgeon, uh, she or he, to be expert with the scalpel, I don't see them using the scalpel as very valuable. I see that as a means. I expect that, uh, that they're good with their cash flow or they're good with their asset allocation, they're good with their underwriting, they're good with their estate planning for aged care. I expect that, the expert value. Uh, that's a fundamental value which in whether we accept it or not, most of our advisory firms would say that's becoming commoditized and easier for clients to get distracted on some of the offers that might offer a similar sort of expert value but really it misses all the nuances and the warm and fuzzies and sometimes cold and prickly advice people need to take, which is beyond just being the expert. And we talk about valuing what we call more enduring value or even profound value, which is not so much what I'm doing with my cash flow or underwriting or asset allocation investment portfolio. It's what that then enables the clients to do uh, from an aspirational perspective. It What enables the clients 
to proceed through transitions, as Mitch Anthony spoke about on this podcast quite well. It's also helped them get through complexities of events or complexities in behaviours that if left unmanaged, your best cash flow plan or asset allocation is going to go out the window as soon as they leave your office. And so we see that the profound and enduring value terms that we use when we is, is much more beyond the product stuff, the act, the tax work, and getting that into the probably the heads of the advisors about how much value they really add there. That's almost behaviorally working on the advisor themselves to say there's terrific value in that. And you've, in fact, you've been probably overselling the expert bit and terrifically underselling what we call the enduring or the profound bits. It's an interesting framing. I, I love the analogy the, of you know, the the doctor using the scalpel, right? The 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 scalpel is a means. The the ends is whatever procedure or surgery they're using. Mm. But clearly, like the value isn't in the scalpel. You couldn't yeah. do the surgery without the scalpel. So we do yeah. need it. It is very important that it's here. But the value isn't in the scalpel. It's a means to an end, which I, I think is a an interesting metaphor for. Yeah. You know, what happens when you think about all of our financial services products that way? Like mm. we, we need mm. to use them. You know, it, it's it's part of the process, but the value isn't in the product and the way the value isn't in the scalpel. No. The value is what you're doing with it, how you're applying it and the outcome that you're yeah, that you're achieving it. And uh, just sort of to call that expert values. Like the yeah, the, the the value of an expert is I know how to use the scalpel in a way that gets a good outcome and doesn't just cut you. But it, but if you look at most of the websites um, of great advisors it's full of scalpels and, and that in itself is what i think to the product origins of the current financial planning industry here in australia and to a certain extent in the us too and uk and new zealand and south africa because of our product origins have come from a product conversation our websites still reflect probably a, a past era of where we were told or we're supported or, or the suppliers we've used this is the value and yet, and I think that's a transition we'll see, and it's being pushed by regulation here in Australia as well, away from that. Not saying that the, the products are as crucial as the engine in our car, but sometimes I don't need to get a car, use a car to go from A to B, and sometimes we're not actually valuing the journey with, as people come to those waypoints and they take the wrong turns because they've been influenced by things that don't help them stay on the best path towards what it is that's important or they need to overcome in their financial lives. Well, I think you have a good point that, you know, as you said, like be, because of our product origins, you know, we just tend to come at these as product conversations. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still struck by it. Even even our landscape today, you know, the certainly I think the advisor industry here in the U.S., particularly those at sort of the the forefront of of the advice realm, you know, are really trying to focus on holistic value propositions that go beyond the products that go beyond the portfolio. But then when you look at like literally some of the leading research here in the U.S. that tries to quantify like what is the value of financial advice. So uh, Morningstar did a study. They called it Advisor Gamma and estimated it at 1.8% of the uh, client portfolio is sort of the advisor value adds um, uh, tax advice around the portfolio. We have loss harvesting rules here. Um, you're just helping clients close the behavior gap and not undermanage themselves. Uh, Vanguard did a version of the study. They estimated the number, I think, almost as high as 3%. They called it Advisor Alpha. Uh, Investnet had another one. They called it Sigma. But you know, all, all of these sort of getting at the, 
the value of advice, you come up with this number somewhere between one and a half and three percent yeah. of the portfolio. And you know, it sounds great. Like typical advisor fee, one or two percent, value proposition one and a half to three. Like, thank goodness, value greater than cost. This means my client should hire me. But the thing that's always struck me about it is we keep doing this math as a percentage of the portfolio, mm, mm. which which was the product. Mm. And not the client doesn't need a portfolio that gets implemented NASA NASA allocated, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it's important thing. Like no, no one, no doctor calculates their value based on how many scalpels they use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, that's a, yeah. And we still calculate our advice value relative to the portfolio that we're, that we're implementing. And as does our client. And so I think, I think in listening to uh, being a big fan of yours for a long time and listening to your podcasts and I, I always wait with bated breath and I do know I need to get out a bit more, but I do wait with bated breath for that. Well, how do you actually price this? And quite often, as we have it here in Australia, well, the clients are used to paying 80 bips or 120 bips. And so when we're actively presenting it in a different way, well, why are we making it difficult for the client if they're expecting it that way? And I think this is where being at the vanguard of, well, let's build something that's going to be long-lasting, give us great careers, give us great businesses, give clients great outcomes, and actually start shifting what I call that pricing lever because it is a movable lever. And I think Gary, last week's podcast about the podcasting was talking about the different levers. But most advisors are still looking at the pricing lever as being so embedded and fixed in that stone of thumb that I think they're, they're running into all sorts of problems without addressing the real issue. Tell the client how much you're worth in dollar terms and wait for them to say, yes, that's fine. So how how do I set those dollar terms? I mean, particularly if you're talking about, I mean, we're, we're even talking about the challenge of quantifying expert value and you know mm. trying to not to calculate your value in the number mm. of scalpels that you use. But when you start talking about these items enduring value profound value which i like i love mm. as a label but like i don't know i guess I, like what is profound value and how do how do i get anywhere remotely close to valuing that right to say like here's my fee in dollars are you comfortable with that yeah and i think it's i think this this is where we're still babes with this michael i guess and we've been doing it for a long time and every time we do it we find out how much we really don't know still but the, the, we, we we like Bill Backrack and, and Dan Sullivan and John Bowen and Ross Levin, Paul Etheridge, George Kinder. We're fans of Maslow thinking. And, and if we have a conversation, whether it's a, a Backrack or Bowen or whoever, Mitch Anthony, about really understanding, the client will, will articulate in that first 15, 20 minutes every year in a consistent methodical way using whichever technique done by those gurus what is this this profound or enduring value they'll articulate it to us our job then is to have the courage to when we reflect and replay that back to them to say you know what is the value for us now to deliver and provide the best possible path that keeps you on path to achieve that stuff and when we say it's it's five thousand or fifty thousand for us to shut up and listen to them to say okay that's valuable for me so help me understand what this conversation looks like. Like, are you suggesting you literally, as I sit down with a client every year for a review, we're some annual renewal meeting, like I'm, I'm having some conversations, the effect of like, what have we done in the past year that was valuable for you? Or is this more no. forward looking? Like what, what, am, yeah. what are you hoping I'm going to do for you this year? That's going to be valuable for you. Like what, what question am I actually framing? 
So there's a and this is our approach, and and there's lots of different approaches, lots of different things. And so I'm not saying this is the right way, but this is the way we're found with our advisory firms, that we only engage annually, and so we don't. We're trying to get away from the concept of client for life, because that's not business thinking about having a client for life. It's it's client for as long as we're adding value to the client, and the client's paying us enough profits for us to build a firm and have a lifestyle that we can repay that in service and, and value. But each year we would sit down and craft a conversation. It's, it's no more than an hour for an existing client. Might no should be no more than an hour and a half for a new client where we, in that hour and a half for a new client, we understand the client's life enough to put most, not all, of their financial issues on a single page. And we picked this up from Russ Allen Prince and John Bowen's work at CG Worldwide many years ago, which is really, really back then right ahead of its time in our opinion. Give the client, here's your financial life on a single page, map it using some sort of mapping software, put it up on a screen, then show them a spe- if this is all the geography on your life, um, showing the people you need to work with, the process we need to follow, the priorities we need to take, the complexities we need to overcome. Then show them the specific path we're going to take this year and maybe five to seven years out from there, again using a simple graphic. And then present a document that's taken ideally 45 minutes to hour and a half that has no product recommendation on it at all. We're not making a single product recommendation, which here in Australia is important uh, because if there's a product recommendation, it's, it's deemed to be product advice. And so there's no product recommendation. It's simply a strategy. We're going to do some cash flow and then we might do some property, then we might do some um, asset allocation. And then we present the fee. And, and we, we price that fee based upon probably in a firm, most of our firms turn over somewhere between 3 to $10 million here in Aussie. We price that based upon up to six different retainers and we have a variability on those retainers, um, which is then presented as a fee. We don't want you to sign now. We love that thinking. We picked that up from Bill Backrack many years ago. Go away three days, come back, and now let's determine if this relationship is going to add value for you and us. So I, I'm still struggling a little just because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to vision this relative to our our landscape like can you can you give me an example of what this might look like you know let's say I'm a, I'm a i'm a client that's come in i'm a uh you know a prospective retiree i'm hoping to stop working in a few years and and uh uh and retire i've got some portfolio assets saved up i'm trying to figure out if this is going to work and if i'm on track and i need someone to help oversee the dollars between now and then like if, if i'm that prospect and i'm coming in like what what is this process look like for me like what's going to get shown to me or communicated to me okay so i think i think initially for a new client we're big believers again we we haven't made this up we've picked it up from working with the the many trips we've made us and uk the first the first 30 minutes 45 minutes is what we call why does it make sense for us to work together and it is as others on this podcast have eloquated much better than i have the whole why conversation to identify what we call the fundamentals, which are those things about I want to retire, I want to have cash flow, I want to have lifestyle, I want to have security, I want to pay the bills, I want to be confident in my life. And then we probe clients to understand what we call the signature outcomes that are unique, unmet, and will require money, advice, or planning to achieve. And they're starting to give us what we call the enduring tabs. These are the enduring things. And it's like most classic aspirational goals-based, outcomes-based advice, whatever we may call it. We then find here in Australia, at least, because of the growth and growth of what we call in Australia, the industry superannuation funds, which are huge pension funds 
um, where people can get advice virtually for nothing, that just having a goals-based conversation is not enough. We have to also have what we call a complexity-based conversation. And so this person heading for retirement, the conversation beyond goals then needs to understand what are those things that are hindering you or stopping you from achieving these things? Is anyone stopping you achieving from these things? So because we believe that a goals-based conversation without understanding of the complexities the clients face as soon as they leave your office is probably going to leave them with a great plan but hasn't taken into account the behavioural or the psychological issues or simply the circum the uh, relationship, the circumstances that clients are finding. And then we have a conversation about the... Uh, I, I got to pause you there. Like that just, that's, that's an interesting point and in, in framing of a, a goals-based conversation isn't enough. We need a complexity-based conversation that asks clients what's hindering you from achieving these goals that you just said you wanted to pursue. That's correct. And, and bear in mind, sometimes they're sitting next to the hindrance. Uh, bear in mind, it's right. It's, you know, it, it's their spouse, a significant other. It's it's their it's their family. It's their and and quite often we found in in the approach to really understanding who you're treating. I, I'm not treating the 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 one one member of the couple's balance sheet or investment portfolio. I'm treating a usually a family or it could be a business. I could be doing this with a small business and have many partners around the table to understand that sometimes the greatest complexity isn't trying to find the best investment performing fund it's trying to get some sort of alignment between people who have got very different goals very different behavioral traits because we we do a immediate debrief i'm jumping ahead a bit we do immediate debrief after these discovery meetings and there are some 24 different complexities we ask our clients to identify which may have been articulated or may have been witnessed or or, or observed without any articulation because the greater the complexities the greater the price if there's going to be an issue where someone is absolute perfectionist and wants to actually see every cell of the Excel spreadsheet, or if we're going to have someone that's been overspending or someone that's been burnt in the past or someone that doesn't get on with their partner, I'm going to put that price up because uh, I'm going to need to do more work on helping them change their overspending habits. Or Those are some interesting complexities even that you raised. Right? I think uh, in the US here, like when, when we talk about complexities and complexity-based pricing, we tend to be talking about things like are they – Okay, they own a business that's that's messier. Uh, you know, they they have some you know unique investment holdings or properties. Like, okay, that's gonna be a little more complex. But you know, some of your complex standards were, were that you just mentioned were things like they they like seeing the details of everything on a spreadsheet, uh, which just makes the process more complex because those engineering clients want a lot of detail <laughs> and that's, that takes time yeah. from everyone. So, like, just yeah. literally reflecting the price that way. Or this client has a history of not following advice effectively. Yeah. We're going to charge them more because I I literally know this is likely to be a problem client. That's those are interesting ways to frame complexities. This this client's impatient. This client's impetuous. This client feels isolated. This client's had a significant family situation change with divorce or death. Uh, this client is highly risk adverse. This client has been a victim of bad advice. This client. So we 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 literally provide the the platform for our clients when they come out of these meetings grab this and it's really important to grab this detail about the complexity whilst still fresh before you go into the next meeting because if we've if, if we price it simply on our understanding of what the works need to be done and not the understanding of the implementation of the work where we start having what we call enduring and profound discoveries that it's not about the best asset allocation it's about having someone that holds me accountable to do the things i want to do but i've never really been put on the table before and identify that's my overspending it's my 
need for significant control. It's my need. It's my lack of actually bringing my significant other into annual conversations and having it on the table as uncomfortable as they are. It, it's my desire for absolute perfect perfect financial performance, which by in itself is something that that's going to be a huge price if you actually want perfect financial performance all the time. And is this like a a list of complexities that you would like give a client as a questionnaire? Like <laughs> no. these things apply to you? Because like it it sounds like a few of these might not be taken well by the client to be <laughs> labeled this way, even though it, it is the reality of their no, situation. Sort of or, like, or these more like you ask questions to try to get at and understand yeah, these things. And yeah. then when you so get to your debrief phase, you're starting to check off boxes on a form. Yeah, I think Russ Allen Prince, you know, years ago and this work he was doing with Merrill, I think, you know, he started to have this conversation in our head about what are the different psychologies of, the, as he called, the affluent advi- investor. And we sort of looked at that and think, hmm, that's interesting. We put it to our clinical psychologists that we use or – and so, how do we go about really pushing? It's just simply pulled out from the work that Russ was doing years ago for us to sort of see that beyond just our, our glib analysis of what behavioral, financial, and psychological issues the clients must have, we need document so that the firm can consistently, methodically, and specifically make sure that they understand that it's, it's got less and less for some clients to do with the best asset allocation and more and more about bringing two people who genuinely want to stick together, love each other, but have got terrifically different habits and approaches and outcomes or even aspirations, what they hope their future life together would look like. Yeah, I I can't remember who it was. I was talking to someone recently that made the this I thought, a, a incredibly powerful point that, you know, the, the this whole goals-based conversation that the industry has kind of revolved around over the past few years is what was, in their words, is kind of nonsensical because he said, look, at the end of the day, if the clients had a clear understanding of where their of what their goals were, you know, they just plug them in any number of software tools online, mm. point themselves that direction, and mm. do it. Like mm. almost by definition, if they're in your office having trouble, then either there's a blocking point that's hindering the progress to the goal. In which case, the issue is not they need a not that they need a plan of how to get to the goal. They need a solution of how to overcome the problem that's keeping them from getting getting to the goal already. Yeah. Yeah, uh, or they don't actually know what the heck their goals are, and <laughs> like this is a this is a goal discovery process, right? I, I'm, you know, had one of these conversations with someone recently, or you know, it was one of these like I, I want someone to, you know, I, I want to know if you guys can help me get better returns in my portfolio, and so you know, we start peeling the layers of the onion, like, well, you know, what, why, why are the returns so important? Well, you know, I'm really anxious about retirement. Why well, are you anxious about retirement? Because like, yeah, I got to get out of my job sooner. Why do you want to get mm-hmm. out of my job sooner? Because mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really miserable. And it's like, well, if we could just help you find a different job where you wouldn't be miserable, could we talk about that instead of the portfolio? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. And like, it ended up being a client conversation about finding new and different work. It had yeah. nothing to do with investment returns. Yeah. You know, that, that was the stated goal. That wasn't the underlying goal. Yeah. The underlying goal was I need to get out of my miserable, crappy job. So we said, well, let's just talk about how to get you out of your miserable, crappy job. And it was the wrong goal. Yeah, I think 90% of your listeners have got into the job they're doing today because they want to do that for more people. But unfortunately, we, we want to do that. And the, and the elephant at the end of that conversation is, well, okay, I'll, I'll clip a ticket on how much money you've got because that's, again, the origins of the industry and how we get here and how everyone else does it and how you're expecting to be charged. I'll do it that way. But that advice to help that person get out of that crappy job 
that could be worth six, seven. I don't know how much the client might put value on that, regardless if they've got a dollar in farm or a million in farm. And I think giving advisors a path, a community, a process feedback, support, for them to build a real sense that, you know what, there's a lot of clients out there that will pay because I know they're doing it now. They're paying me X thousand every year to have these conversations with them about behaviours that once they're past 35 years old, they're always going to be bad savers. They're always going to find it difficult to save. They're always going to be overburdened by significant debt. They're always going to be too conservative or too uh, money for them as status or privilege. They're always going to be that person and they're always going to need, I think, a great advisory firm that holds them accountable to the paths and the goals and the aspirations and the complexities that need to be managed or overcome. And they think that's having us on retainer to do that stuff. And yes, we'll handle the events when the tax comes, the retirement comes, the wedding comes, the children leave, the parents get old. They're they're fundamental. And so how do you set a dollar amount to it, right? When we still have to ultimately get back to, I need to price a fee, you know, it's one of the things that's always fascinated me. We, we, for most of our history as advisors, we never actually had to price our services because it was set by the, you know, the product providers that dictated what the commission was. You just, you, you took whatever they gave you. And then even as we migrated to assets under management, at least here in the U.S., the overwhelming majority of advisors are roughly 1%, at least on sizable yep. portfolios, yep. little higher when you're lower, a little lower when you're higher because it's a graduated schedule. But like, yep. You could always safely price around that number because it's more or less what everybody else was doing. But the minute you try to charge, like just for the advice itself, mm-hmm. you, you you like you come off of all those guideposts, and it gets really hard to just sort of pluck this number out of thin air. Like, yeah, what's the what's the value of this conversation I had with a client that may or may not have changed their yeah. life? We're big fans of Ron Baker's work, of Alan Weiss's work, of Nagel's work with value pricing. And so we're standing on their shoulders and and we're just continually doing it. I think also a key point is that we're pricing 40 to 50 of our clients' files every week. And so we get to see the pre-retiree, the wealth accumulator, the post-retiree, the divorcee, the SM, small business entrepreneur. And we can get, we get continually confident amongst our clientele at least by seeing their conversations and their debriefs of what we think when we so when we see a file we can say that's a twelve thousand dollar case or that's a 24 or that's a twelve hundred dollar case because but i expect on the other side our clients our advisors who are saying gee whiz jim and i was doing one percent with this client and and i you know i'm not too sure if i was adding value for it now going and saying because we've got 1.2 million, it's going to be 12,000. You know, where do you get that? And so it's an evolution, I guess, is the first point for every advisor who wants to move across to something that's simply stated in dollar terms. And, and, and be very clear that the pricing conversation is very different to the payment terms conversation. But we're pricing it based upon value that takes two things into account. Ideally, one, some reference point. And the reference point is simply, well, What's the available hours? It's the whole thing we used to do in accounting one-on-one. What's the available hours, the available resource? Um, I want to make my at least minimum of 40% EBITDA every year. And so if I was going, this is the sort of return. So you've got this starting point, which is based upon some sort of simple spreadsheet on resources, time, available returns, and profitability. And at the other level, you've got a demand point, which is not all business is good business because if you're accepting 100% of the business, you're too cheap. And if you're not winning any business, you're too dear. And what's the point in between? And being willing for the market, the market 
of new business and the market of your ongoing business to set that point. And that is probably, Michael, one of the biggest leaps of faith we we help our clients, our advisory firms take, that we say, you know what, if you had three great clients this week and you could help them all and you put down what you think the price is for all three and you want them all, you really can add significant value to them all. But, you know, when two of the three are accepting and one's just saying, you know what, it's just too expensive, your price is about right. So we're saying up front, when two-thirds of your new business is saying, you know what, that dollar figure, it's, it's, it's not cheap but it's valuable, then that's about right. And for the ongoing clients, and this is a bit more controversial here in Australia, probably less so at the moment with our later stage of regulatory reform, but we don't believe in hanging on to 100% of clients every year because I can't build a business that way if I'm still holding on to a proposition that I sold 5, 10, 15 years ago and servicing those people as they expect 5, 10, 15 years ago whenever they call and still do a proposition today. And so we say when about four out of five of your existing clients are saying, you know what, it's still valuable for me, that price is about right. So you've got to have this, one, the setting at the beginning about what's the capacity and two, the demand at the top because I don't want to work ridiculous hours. I don't want my team to work ridiculous hours. I want to do quality work, but I can't be all things to all clients and I can't take on all clients. And so this is an interesting piece. You know, the 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 first part I, I get, I, in fact, I think we did a, a piece on this on our site uh, uh, a couple months ago as well. You know, if you're, if you're going out and pricing your services, you know, just whatever you're charging clients, like if 100% of your clients are saying yes, you are not charging enough. Like it, there should be some tension mm-hmm. if, if everybody likes it. A few of them would have paid a whole lot more uh, uh, and probably still. St- I think it's a good strategy for getting going. Once, once you're getting going, yeah. once, you're, once you're part of what we call the activity phase, that strategy will kill you. That strategy will kill you. If you just keep taking them on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, or early on, like when I've got no clients, I guess anybody who will pay me a fee and generate some revenue is fine. But uh, uh, the moment you start approaching capacity, yeah, you, you like you need a you want a fee that creates a little bit of tension. You know, I tend to tell people like if, if you're if well, if nobody's taking it, either you're charging way too much or you really need some sales training classes. Yeah, uh, and that's if, the, if, that that level if, in Aussie at least is about a quarter of a million Aussie. When okay. when advisors getting close to that quarter of a million, no matter how they charge commissions or hourly rates or retainers, yep. you, you've now got to start questioning the S model. Where I'll, I'll take you on, I'll take you on, I'll take you on. Yep, we see the we see the same thing here in the in the U.S. You know, probably somewhere between one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars of yeah. of revenue, and just you you've got enough revenue per client adding up. You've got enough clients. You're starting yeah. to approach that capacity point when suddenly you have to reevaluate. So if you're if you're getting almost no one, well. You're pricing too high, or you have sales skill problems, but you, you're Spot not going to get that far. If you're at the other end of the spectrum, then you got to start raising your fees because you should be having some people say no. That's correct. The idea of doing it with ongoing clients, though, I think is mm. is more striking. You know, mm. for most advisory firms, at least we see here in the U.S., you know, there's there's not great data on retainer based firms because we haven't had a lot of them doing it for a long time that we've measured. But certainly, when you look at the the assets and our management model firms here, most firms have 90-something percent retention rates. Good firms typically sit in the 96 to 98 percent range when you look at like the, the, the top advisory firms in mm. the U.S. that are running that model. And so when you make a statement like, you know, you, you, you should only, you know, only four out of five should stay, one out of five should mm. go. And if you're not turning mm. over 
20% of your clients, you might be charging too little. I think is a, mm. that's a more interesting controversial <laughs> statement, I yeah. think. You know, I mean, on the one end, like, okay, if I had a never-ending stream of clients, sure, I'd love to keep moving up market and rotating them out. But, you know, I mean, just that idea, like, if I'm going to keep raising my fees to uh, to drive out, you know, the bottom 20% of my clients and only keep 80%, like, now I need I need 20% growth just to stay even on my client count. Like, that just feels like a big growth hurdle I'm creating for myself. Or am I not understanding the way that you're free? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think, and this is where... The, the strength of this, as I called it, the, the feed lever is so locked in stone in our thinking that conversations continually come up about shouldn't 96% be our target for retaining? You know, isn't that absolutely logical? Isn't it like a real estate rent roll where I want to keep these clients coming back? Isn't it like a drug company's revenue stream on a line of drugs? Right. No, it's well, not. <laughs> you know, and if this was I don't know if no, I no. in terms of drugs, but I, yeah, I mean, I just I look at it like, you know, I, uh, you know, funds or management fees are very profitable. You know, once I've got the client, like frankly, it 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 doesn't it costs me a lot more to get an advisor to get a new client than it does to get an advisor who will just give fantastic service to my existing client, even if they're not good at getting new clients because I don't need them to. And so it just creates this temptation. Maybe it's a faulty temptation. I don't know of saying like, I've got this piece of clients. I know they can be served profitably often more profitably over time because i can remove myself from the equation and hire another advisor who is maybe paid a little bit less than i was as clients rotate through and like why wouldn't i want to keep every darn client i possibly keep <laughs> i think i think my understanding my biases is really important to understand the answer to that question my bias and for the i guess for the firms that we are appealing to is fundamentally around building firms that wish to be a principal advisor. So they, they wish to build a proposition that's consistent and specific and methodical in the delivery of their clients' lives as the client's principal advisory firm. And that if there's an issue uh, of a financial matter, our firm is going to be the go-to firm. So we, we don't, Michael, have firms come along to us and say, I want to be a much, much, much better investment advisory firm or a or an insurance advisory firm, or a credit advisory firm. They come to us on this principle of us, we want to be the client's principal for a couple of reasons. One, commercially, it makes sense if we're controlling the whole of wallet financial decisions. And so that we are the primary influencer, not saying we're experts in estate planning or the law or the underwriting or the investment strategy. We can bring those people to the table. These Our clients will never delegate the project management, the client management, the strategic management aspects of their clients' work. But they'll, they're happy to delegate, and depending upon if they're an accounting original or insurance originally or an investment originally. But they want to be a principal advisor. So under that thesis, excuse me, as being the principal advisor, and if we hear they've got retention of 96%, we say, you are going to run out of lifestyle before you know what happened to you. Uh, you're not going to be able to fund your growth. You can't keep, as a principal advisor, Unless you start wrenching this lever that's set in your rock about what you're worth, you're going to be building a great return for all your clients, but you yourself are going to need financial advice to get you out of the hole you're putting yourselves into. Because ostensibly, like I'm just the implication, like I'm going to hit capacity and not be able to serve these clients. I I, I can't. I won't be able to fund growth. I, I won't be able to. I won't be able to control the hours I work. I, I think 
most of our advisors are really good at real all of them are really really good at what they do and they generate a very good natural uh, momentum of good referrals and not saying that sales are just falling in their lap but they're continually having to handle the constant conversation about are you available can you help us and as they build their own base and the clients want to keep coming back but unless we start levering this pricing mechanism um, not simply just put on more software and put on more people and open up another office which simply doesn't it keeps the worth conversation out of the future it's just when you get to that level of whether it's half a million a million two million three million and you still think for a retiree that's got a bit of assets, maybe a bit of cash flow issues, maybe some health issues, they're going to be charged 6000 We might put it up to 6600 next year and 7000 If you're still thinking that way as you grow your firm, you're severely depleting the real worth you can build and also significantly undercharging for the access to you. So I'm, I'm struck that, you know, I think to some extent this is perhaps a, a, a particular conversation around retainer models because – for the classic asset center management model, the reality is, on average, my fees do go up every year. They go up by the base of the real return of the market because I'm I'm charging percent of a portfolio that's invested in the markets and generates some real return. And and maybe that nets down slightly for my retired clients because they're drawing a few percent out. But you know, at least with classic accumulator clients, like if I just get a a forty something client and I'm working with them and they're saving and investing my fee may double in the next 10 years just because the portfolio is going to accumulate and I'm charging a percentage of the portfolio and it's going to grow with market returns and they might be saving on top. And so my fee just naturally lifts, which you know perhaps hides a lot of other sins along the way or not. But uh, like, I, I guess we, we almost get the best of both worlds. Like We get our 90 plus percent retention rates and we get clients whose revenue may double simply because the the we're charging on a portfolio and the portfolio is growing. But when you're in a retainer model, that natural lift doesn't happen. You do have to actually be much more conscious and proactive about how is your average revenue per client going to lift over time. So I like it just sort of it's it's registering for me that this conversation seems perhaps more even more salient in a retainer oriented model than a an asset center management model because the the that natural lift that portfolios happen to give in the AUM model isn't there with retainers. You have to be more conscious in figuring out how your fees are going up over time. But there's a Kodak moment coming, isn't there? How so? Like if we're not doing much, if we're not doing much for the client, and we're continually having our fee retainer models doubling and tripling. The new entree into the market, the new fintechs are not going to allow that vacuum to go unfilled. True. I, th- I think what what ends up happening for most advisory firms is, at least for what I see here in the U.S. that go down the, the, the road of this model is, as their clients grow and their average revenue per client goes, they often end up reinvesting back into the firm to do more services, to do more things, to get better advice, to hire higher quality advisors, you know, whatever means it is that they can upgrade their service and value proposition over time. And it, it gets pretty straightforward to do because the revenue is growing and the revenue per client is growing. So the, you know, there's this, I think there's this mechanism that occurs of my firm's revenue is growing and my average client is growing. So I'm going to reinvest some of these dollars to make sure I keep these clients. 
and the services start trying to lift up to meet the growing revenue, which I suppose is paradoxical, right? In in the classic road, you lift up your services to, to, to justify a higher fee. We end up charging higher fees and then try to lift our services to justify why we should keep the client. But we do sort of end up getting there, at least on average, some firms more than others. I, th- I think Mitch Anthony on a podcast said quite nicely, you know, they're now paying yeah. us more, so let's give them four meetings rather than two. If they don't value that, so, so if you sit down with them once a year and understand what's the value you're seeking, and I might go from two to four meetings because now you've got a portfolio of X compared to Y, but that might be valuable from where I'm sitting, thinking they're now getting the access is twice as much. But if understanding what's profound and enduring for them, well, that doesn't add much more value to me as compared to keeping me on the path as per what I've described to you. So it might be valuable to the advisor. But this is the danger part about if we step too far away from that fundamental conversation, what does the client value? And having this consistent, methodical, specific approach every year that we can pick up from the gurus such as Bill, Bill Backrack and the, the Kinders and the, and the Bowens and the Etheridges, et cetera, and then relate that value not by what we – I don't value whether there's anesthetic before the surgery. I just value getting my knee working again. And I think the Kodak moment is coming. And it's certainly, we've also got another issue here in Australia, the regulatory moment, which I'll come to in a minute, but where I can get that level of service and my friends can get that level of service for 15 bips, not 150 bips. And just relying upon a growing portfolio, I think is a dangerous longer term strategy for anyone looking for 15 or 10 to 15 years ahead of them in the in this industry. Well, and I do think you make a a very powerful point that even or perhaps especially for those firms that you know are operating on models like asset center management, where there is a natural lift in revenue per client simply because the market's sinicarious there over time, that you may be saying, you know, I, I I want to reinvest into my business in these client relationships because I want to retain them because they are financially profitable and, and lucrative and naturally growing. You still have to be really careful about how you reinvest in your clients to try to lift your value to the fees that happen to be going up from the markets anyways, because what we what we think of as value may not actually be valuable to the clients. Like and and I think uh, extra meetings is a a fantastic example. You know, we're we're in the metropolitan Washington, DC area, which is pretty well known mm-hmm. here in the US mm-hmm. for being one of the worst traffic cities of the across the country and i have seen a phenomenon with a few clients over the years we're going to them saying you know hey uh you know we're, we're you know you had your business liquidity event congratulations you you moved to another tier with us we don't say call them a, a clients but like you know you you're now at the a client tier you get to meet with us four times a year and had a client at one point basically say something to the effect of oh so great now i get to sit in traffic four times a year to come to your office like this was not this was not good. Like we're all excited, like you get to see us more. And and it was this really uh, I don't know, at least awkward to me moment of like, but what if I don't want to <laughs> see you anymore and I hate the traffic of coming to your office? And like we were we were completely not prepared for that moment of the conversation, but it is a striking point. Like, oh crap, what if we're actually doing such a good job in two meetings that that was all they needed? Now I don't know what the heck to do with them when they're when I'm supposed to give more value and move up the line, but they don't actually want more meetings from me because I happen to be going well with the two we were having. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's it's such an infantile area, Michael, and I think 
in some ways, the more we do it, the more we don't know um, what needs to be done. Uh, but I think the opposite is also true that in a very, very, very short period of time, um, literally minutes, you can give that advice that's worth $10,000 because you've been doing it for 30 years. And this is where we, we're not fans of the hourly rate model either because, again, it's commoditizing the hour as compared to the value of what you may deliver in a minute or two. And so it works both ways. The client. That's a striking way to frame it the, that, you know, the, the hourly model commoditizes into an hour what you might do that's even more valuable in just a few minutes. And so this whole, again, trying to loosen this grip we've all got and paradigms we've had. And for some of us, it's just too hard. It's just been there for so long. We're so ingrained that, and we hear it all the time. Well, Jim, you know, my clients, they're in country, New South Wales, we're a small town, you know, they, um, they're they not going to pay city prices. And yeah, I can, and we say, look, you got you might got to make a leap of faith. We say, try it five times, share the recordings with us five times, let us write the engagement documents five times. And if the end of those five times, none of it gone ahead, then okay, I'll buy it. But if we can get one of those five, will we? can you do it again? And that's held us in pretty good stead for 25 years. <laughs> just, just give me an opportunity to prove it with you for one of your next five clients. You know, but it, it's, it's just in, because you're working with fundamental beliefs here, Michael, not in the eyes of the client, but firstly in the eyes of the advisor, that I've got to do stuff to add value as compared to just be here. I've got to – the advisor's – I'm sure most listening on this podcast are like our advisors. They know their clients' lives better than the clients know them. They know the market better than the clients know them. They know the laws better than the clients know them. They know the complexities better than the clients can see because they're blind to quite often the unknown unknowns in their own life. And so with all this knowledge, if we can just have a proposition, we call it the no surprises proposition, whilst you're with us paying our retainer, you can expect a no surprises approach to your financial life to achieve the things we've agreed to, overcome the issues we know are coming and those that are unexpected, and keep you on that best possible path. And if you're worrying too much about your money, you're not paying us enough money because that's our job. We take all the worry away. Because we're in that position objectively to know the market, to know them, to know the issues, to know the laws, doesn't mean we don't toss and turn at night over their lives to ensure they're on that path. That's what we're paid for, just like a surgeon would before he or she does any um, any significant surgery, but that's what they're paid for. So I'm struck by this. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, I think, is very much the same you know, sort of s- struggles and challenges that we're trying to figure out here in the U.S. about about charging for financial advice. You know, we we still have a segment of the industry that's predominantly compensated by the commissions uh, of the products they implement. We have a certainly the the fastest growing segment of our industry that's getting compensated for. Uh, their funds under management and you know, frankly deliver a wide range of services. So some firms really are just tending to those portfolios and not doing much else. Some firms are doing quite holistic financial advice propositions and simply happen to charge under uh, assets under management because as, as we said earlier, it it works. It's what consumers are are used to. We don't hear a lot of objections about it. And, and then there's a front end of that that group that's trying to start just charging for advice itself you know we i broadly label that category just fee for service advisors right just advisors who are directly paid a fee for those planning services and some are trying hourly and some are trying retainers and some are annual retainers and some are monthly retainers but a lot of us are i think are going through the same kinds of struggles and and framing issues that you're talking about here of how do we price those services how do we adjust the pricing? You know, I, I love your complexity factors and, and complexity factors that aren't just 
factual complexity, their client relationship complexities as ways to try to figure out how do we set that price and then start adjusting it for the particular prospect we're sitting across from. Yeah. Yeah. And I think really another couple of important sort of biases that we, we would say that it's not a debate between if I'm professional or not. Everyone's professional. Every, well, most people are professional. They're, they're acting in their client's best interests. A great asset manager, she wouldn't put the client in the wrong portfolio that benefits her. She'd act in the best. A great underwriter, again, he wouldn't underwrite them incorrectly or say he can underwrite something he couldn't. It's sort of like a professional car salesman. They're professional in saying, no, you know what, this car's not right for you. It won't be in your best interest. And so the, all these people are professional. It's just fundamentally what's the core value driver for you. If I am delivering great, really excellent, sophisticated, and I love the great investment portfolios, then a fund model for pricing is knock yourself out. I think that is probably the logical attachment point based upon what you're doing. Um, or if you're a risk, no one can underwrite like you can for your specific niche and you're professional at it. You wouldn't underwrite things that don't fit the client's best interest. Then price on the underwriting. But our, our clients are aiming to be their client's principal advisor where there's no real or perceived or perceived conflict with the advice that's been given. And therefore, there cannot be, in our opinion, anything that might ruin that perception that you're only recommending that approach to, uh, because that's how you get paid. And we don't, we, we can't have that. We, we, in, in, and that's, that's, again, another bias we have. But we're not casting any stones at anyone saying the rest are unprofessional at all. And of course, the dynamic there in Australia is your your regulators are kind of pushing everybody in this direction. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they know where they're pushing at the moment. And we are at a very, very crucial juncture. Um, so coming back to the other point about where uh, in a funds and a management model, it's quite comfortable to believe uh, and assume in the past that once I get clients on, they've got 100,000 or a million, I'll get a trail from that. And it'll just keep going provided, you know, you've got to do something wrong to actually get rid of them or lose them. Well, now in Australia, I only am eligible for that renewal every two years. Uh, and so I've now got to go back um, and potentially this may even change even further subsequent to the Hain report coming out in the next couple of months that I have to be far more pro. I can't sit on a trail. We had the, the sort of the center point, centerpiece of our a huge inquiry we had in Australia last year is a report called 499 released by the equivalent of the SEC over here called the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, um, which fundamentally put out a report back in 2016 called the Fee for No Service Report. And it really was shooting fish in a bucket aiming at the big institutions here in Australia. And we have some very big banks here in Australia compared to the US. Our four biggest banks are part of our top 10 companies in Australia. And because we've got such a what, how would you say? I suppose a closed market in some way. We've only got four major banks, and three of the four banks are now exiting advice even before the findings of Hain are released because the brand damage. Um, our, our fifth, supposedly the fifth pillar of the financial services industry, a company called AMP, its share price has been decimated. It's lost its chairman. It's lost its CEO. It's up for potential criminal charges, and so. Australians, by reading the headlines. All stemming from advice and discretions. Yeah, and I think, and these were known, I think this is the interesting part. The Australian Securities Investment Commission, the SEC equivalent, they found these indiscretions back in 2016. Um, and they issued a report, 499, and it was in the press. And at the time, they had fines of somewhere in the midst of tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. 
as a consequence of it. Nothing really happened. There was a bit of what we call enforceable undertakings here in Australia, which means, well, I'm not going to take you to court about it, but we're just going to have some ASIC officers oversee the advice and make sure we're just really on top of your compliance procedures. Yeah, we we have some of those too. You are paid a substantial fine without admitting guilt. But now, thanks to thanks to the headlines and thanks to the process, that couple of hundred million is now in the billions of compensation and remediation that now needs potentially to be paid. And they will they will put they will put people uh, prob- well you have to see we haven't had the Enron effect out here yet we we put put people in jail. And so the fee for no service. And my clients have been telling me, you won't believe what we now have to do to substantiate the service and show the meeting notes and show the diary notes and show we gave advice and ask them to come in. They didn't want to come. We've got to have those file notes. Otherwise, we're going to be hit with fee for no service. And so just for context, like I think fee for no service sounds like is sort of the functional equivalent of what we here in the US would, would probably call reverse churning, which is just... You charge an ongoing fee for the client, but you didn't actually see them or do anything for them. So why are you still charging this fee? Well, you, you, you sent out newsletters. You offered them to come in. They didn't come in. Um, so you had your systems working. You had your, your database punching stuff out to them. Here's the investment update. Please come in for our briefing. We've got an, we've got an expert coming in to talk about what markets. We had all that going out. Uh, but in, in terms of a certain level of was there actually – so people were being paid an ongoing trial. and they weren't getting any of the services that were being being promised, and uh, and so they're getting the, the because they were like trying to have the meetings and couldn't have the meetings, or just the advisor said, "Sure, you can come on in for meetings," but then the client never came in, and now the advisor gets you know uh, punished for charging a fee when they never met with the client because the client didn't come in for the meetings. Well, I think it's it's a combination, and I think the institutions were more here's we're charging you a fee for ongoing service. No service the, the services were offered were not deemed to be anything more than simply rudimentary. The meetings weren't offered uh, and the clients were charged unbeknownst to the client. And so I think the 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 one of the recommendations, and again, we've got a federal election coming up, is to be far, far more transparent in terms of understanding what the ongoing price, not simply in percentage terms, which again starts to play to people's understanding of what they're paying in percentages compared to in dollar terms. I think the overall, the overall, and I haven't really done it justice in terms of what is really going on with the Hain Commission, but the overall consequence is the assumption that I'll continue to get paid for work done in the previous years is very much being tested regulatory. Well, and, and you know, again, just for kind of context for advisors here in the US, you know, Jim, you, you kind of mention only briefly at the at the beginning of that point that you know in Australia now every two years clients essentially have to have to re-up their advisory agreements. Like here in the US, this is equivalent of if you want to continue to charge AUM fees for your client base, every two years your clients have to re-sign a new investment mm-hmm. management agreement. Mm-hmm. Like you have to do a new IMA every mm-hmm. two years or your or your AUM fees stop mm-hmm. have to be terminated, mm-hmm. and just just imagining kind of the a the the sheer paperwork effort of every client has to re-sign an investment management agreement every two years, and like even if the client just is being slow about returning the paperwork, if they don't return it in time, you don't get your fee. Yeah, and then on top of that, if the even if they do sign. You have to actually demonstrate what you did for the past two years for the fees that you were getting, or you're still under threat from the regulator for uh, charging fees for no service. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, but I think the bigger consequence for change uh, is not regulation, but I think it's fintech in, in making it using, I think the fintechs uh, that are starting to get f- or have probably having a lot of funding and more and more capital being raised to come out with alternatives to some of these big, huge funds that we've got here in Australia because we have had compulsory pensions here for some 21 years. It's mandated that we have to put money away for our retirement and our pool is currently $2.7 trillion Aussie and it's growing. And so we're forced to save and the Australians are now saying, well, hang on, these guys, we're being forced to save and sometimes the biggest beneficiaries, beneficiaries are being forced to save those who've been charging us fees for doing very little. And Australians hate that, absolutely hate that with a passion. Right. It's, uh, you again, sort of a, in the context here in the US, you may imagine a world where there's a, you know, a single nationalized 401k plan, I suppose, like, yeah. you know, federal thrift savings plan is probably closest, but like there, there's a nationalized defined contribution plan privatized social security would sort of be our functional equivalent and and just everybody has mandatory savings into it and it's these giant liquid pools that not surprisingly you put a whole bunch of assets on the table and the asset management industry would like to manage it for mm, a fee mm. and i guess that's now uh the sharks have been circling 2.7 trillion dollars of it for a couple of years and neither the regulators or consumers are happy with what they came out with yeah yeah, and then and the politicians can't keep their hands off it um, in terms of the promises about what they'll do for it. We've had a report come out from the uh, government's biggest economic advisor in this country called the Productivity Commission, uh, now suggesting that there should only be ten top superannuation pension funds, for which the four hundred and fifty thousand new Australians that start a job every year should be put into one of those ten to protect their longer term interests. And you can imagine the the plethora of headlines and press about that and the meantime you know financial technology i guess your your equivalent of robo advisors saying off the side you know oh we'll, mm. we'll be happy to do that for a fraction mm. of the price of what the banks were mm. doing yeah we, we don't have the bricks and mortar we don't have the infrastructure we're, we're fintech savvy we know what the wealth accumulates who are the people we should be appealing to have got the long-term returns we know what they want we're already on their iphone um, it's a very attractive proposition so where does this take the Australian marketplace in terms of like the market for financial advice? I mean, is 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 anything left? Is it regulated out of business? Is this like a new renaissance period and something new? Like what what does this look like for you, for uh, advisors in Australia? I mean, at least the the, the forward looking ones who actually do service for their fees, but just want to want to <laughs> run a successful business. So I think it's it's an interesting glimpses to what fiduciary rulemaking can potentially look like here as well if our regulators took as hard of a look at some business practices here as mm. ASIC seems to be doing there. It's having fundamental ramifications. And be, care and be careful any prognostication about what I think may happen. Um, but, again, another bias to share with you and the audience is that our average age of our advisor, lady or man, is late 30s, early 40s. We are generally appealing to those who come along to our program and who we price their files and we give them business consulting advice and put them with a community of others who are building valuable advice firms. But they're in that 35 to 45 age group. That, that's the average of all advisors in Australia or that's the average of the folks that you that your firm Yeah, works no, with? the average of all advisors in Australia is 55 to 65. Okay. All right. Yeah, which is similar yeah. to us so, here. So we, we've, got a, okay. we've got a younger set. And if you also look at them – 
particularly the later sets that have been coming in in the two, last two to three years, you would probably look at them and think, you know what, they look more like an accounting firm than they do a traditional financial advisory firm. They, they see that the accounting model has just as many um, hairs on it in terms of the changing the tax legislation, the commoditization of tax advice, the change in lifestyle requirements for the new staff that don't want to work the hours of those that went before them and want a lifestyle early and a return early and get equity earlier. They themselves want to maintain a lifestyle having have bought out of usually an accounting group. They see the commercial value of actually being the one throat to choke for a range of the client's financial lives um, and therefore having that influence. Uh, and they also see that the old adage that you should have a license, your broker-dealer should be an institution to give you that power and balance sheet and strength. Well, you know what? That's a big liability now. I don't see that as attractive. And so they're getting their own licenses there broadening the proposition of not only their accounting clients but financial advisory clients to call them advice clients. And yes, they still have divisions for tax and still have divisions for financial planning and still have divisions for investment and still have business for business management. But they're actively entrepreneurially building this this new, as we call it, the advice lab within some of these firms that aims to be the principal advisor and they see a glorious future. Um, the exit of old advisors who are not meeting the education requirements that the new education body wants in place by 2024 for a minimum degree and minimum stipulation and compliance to a pretty much a product-based regulatory curriculum, it seems, at this stage. But we're seeing an exodus of, um, unfortunately, it's far too much experience who can genuinely want to help people. But if following by the letter of the regulator, a lot of them will have to exit, which is a tremendous pity in their mind. We would say that they won't be able to sign a technical document, but they can certainly sign a strategy document and still keep clients engaged. So we, we see amongst our clients a glorious future as the institutions exit, the clarity becomes clearer, but the back office providers proliferate at cheaper offerings for the product advice. Yet clients still need relationships, we think, to inherently change long-term habits, long-term behaviours, to talk about not simply the asset allocation, but the complexities that are holding people up from achieving what they want to achieve. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic there that, you know, as you'd mentioned, like almost all advisors there historically worked for one of your major four bank dealer groups, you know, r- roughly the equivalent here in the U.S. of our wirehouses. And, you know, it was one of the things that fascinated me as I first visited uh, the Australia and the advisor community myself a number of years ago, you know, the, this independence movement that we've had here in the U.S. It started with our independent broker dealers back in the kind of 70s and 1980s, uh, then shifted to our independent RAs in the 1990s and especially the 2000s through today. There's almost no independent movement anywhere in Australia historically. Like it really was virtually every advisor seemed to work for for one of the big four. And so your landscape seems to just now be building out this independent back office support ecosystem that we've been developing here in the US for 30 or 40 years. And so, you know, we're, we're decades ahead of you in the, in the infrastructure for, for supporting independent fiduciary advisors, but your regulations just leapfrogged us by 10 plus years. We've been, we've been fighting about a fiduciary rule since 2010, still haven't done anything. Uh, you know, ASIC already did its first and now queuing up for round two in the span of only about seven years. So it's, it's a striking juxtaposition for me that our, our, our independent ecosystem is well ahead of yours, but your fiduciary regulation that tends to drive independent firms might be five or 10 years ahead of us now. 
Yeah, and I think I think the independents, independent thinkers uh, may have been, well, there may have been, well, there have been independent thinkers, obviously, in the accounting um, who w- wouldn't, didn't touch financial planning with a barge pole because of the perceived conflict. But they're now quite open when you sit around and advise them at a board meeting about the opportunities of really going in a la independent with the independent support mechanisms and network that are available to have that conversation, not only compliantly, but commercially and deliver the advice, increase the fee per client, satisfaction per client, as long as they can keep also managing the price of that proposition so they start, don't start working ridiculous hours and pushing their team to limits that they won't keep the team members. And so like, how do you see this advice value proposition shifting there? I mean, does it just mean the the rest of the Australian advisor base is going to be pushed by regulators into all of these things you've already been talking about for yeah. years? Uh that's a great question you know i think it's um a combination of fintech it's a combination of regulation consumerism competition i I guess altruistically i'd say that the objective of us in the industry slash profession the terminology is not as important but is to make advice as valuable as possible for as many australians as possible we we would say our big hairy audacious 20-year goal is to make advice valuable for 80 percent of the australians and stop the conversation about affordability and start the conversation about a value, making things valuable, then talk about affordability. And I, and I think we'll, I think the market will rise to that occasion and um, we'll less talk about having an accountant or a financial planner. We'll just have an advisor. And it'll be pushed by all those factors you just mentioned, you know, the regulatory, the fintech, the competition, the consumerism, the education. And we're, we're in front of a golden era of advice, in my opinion, for the next 20 years. I love that framing of like let's let's just bo- focus on making the advice more valuable first, and we can figure out the affordability part next. So what what are the gaps then for actually making advice more valuable? Right, it, like you didn't just frame that as hey, we need to get better explaining the value of our advice. That sort of started with just making the advice actually more valuable. So what like w- what are the value delivery gaps? Like what are what are firms not doing to make advice valuable that they have to start doing? Well, it goes right back to, you know, what, what are we trying to do? You know, who have we hired? Have we hired people that can have the EQ that can understand the value the clients are seeking, uh, not only the IQ, but understand the technical solution they have? So it, it, what are we trying to build here? And again, going back to our original conversation about our product origins, uh, and there are lots of great people, lots and lots of fantastic people, but moving it forward from here and recognizing that product is the means but not the ends, we have to rethink the sort of people we attract to this, the proposition we're trying to deliver. It's, it's, and I'm a fan of um, the diffusion of innovations type thinking, that it just takes ages to bring a real innovation across to change it off the value is in the product compared to the value is in the proposition. And so changing the people we hire, changing how we remunerate those people, changing the culture we build, respecting greatly what a lot of fantastic people have done to build the institutions that have been stalwarts of the industry to date, but recognizing subtly that for a whole host of reasons, we have to have a different conversation with different people because there's a real need. We say that there's no equivalent medical profession in the financial services industry, that the drug companies own all the hospitals. And that's okay. I'm not saying they get bad advice, but the only drugs that come from that hospital are owned by that company owns the hospital. But we, we, we need the equivalent of the medical practitioner who's getting paid on the value they're delivering. And again, that has that analogy doesn't work as we see the commoditization of medicine as well. 
I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I think it's it's foundational in the people we hire, the, the task we've got to set ourselves up for, to give people to to have less our arguments in their marriages, to have greater hope for the silly or great opportunities they want to build their businesses into, to live the life for their for their for their children or for their aging parents. That at the moment, that unless they've got access to a great advisor or to pick the it, it's a hard conversation for them to have, and we don't have that medical profession. They're going to say, "What do I need to do?" When I am, I am struck by the point that you know some of this just starts all the way at the base of the the people we hire. That you know, I've seen this challenge occur quite a bit in the in the industry here in the U.S. I think particularly when I look at some of the broker dealer community here, which you know are our broker dealers. They're their fundamental reason for existing from a legal regulatory perspective is they are uh, intermediaries for product distribution. You know, they they are the infrastructure to support the sale of of investment products, and you know they've been trying to pivot themselves more into the advice business in part because they're losing market share to the independent registered advisory firms that are, are you know solely building around uh, advice propositions and. The challenge for a lot of broker dealers here is the their base of brokers are people that they hired twenty and thirty years ago, right? Because th- those are the experienced advisors that are with them today, and the people they hired twenty and thirty years ago were people who sold products. I mean, that was the business back then. Like they they rigorously screened for people who were focused on selling more stuff, and. If you have someone that's been incredibly successful at selling stuff for 20 or 30 odd years, they're not necessarily interested in doing something different. Now they got a thing that works and it's selling stuff. Uh And, Uh Uh and a lot of firms I'm finding are really struggling with how to do this shift from, uh, from products to advice, because the reality is they've just got a giant base of people that are predominantly focused and affiliated around product and the the ones that were more interested in advice often have already left by now because they realize that their organizations Mm -hmm. are fairly product centric and you know that's not true for all of our dealer groups and and i think some are navigating this a little bit better than others but uh, you know for a lot of firms here i think there's there's an underestimation of how entrenched sales cultures have become from the fact that that was where they built their roots and you, you can't just go back to everyone and say Hey, we're going to be in the advice business now because the the brokers and the platform aren't interested. But there's a model in the IT industry, uh, which is my origins. You know, back where they used to uh, sell boxes and and uh, the old Wang, Sperry, Univac, Tandem, Perkinelma, Prime, and they've made a well, not all of them, obviously. And the head, the neons across the harbour here in Sydney have certainly changed to be financial services groups now. They've moved into facilities management. They've moved into outsourcing services. And that stuff still needs to be sold. But as you've pointed out, in the US, you've had a, a big growth in these facility firms and feel set to make the entrepreneur who's at the coalface going face-to-face, belly-to-belly with the client, make their job easier and easier because they're only offering facilities. And I think this is where the building of this new, what is the true advice platforms of the future? It's less of a technical license on product and more of a, a, a means by which I can deliver the project, deliver the service to client, uh, and do so in, with a strategy that, is, that a, a house approach can be built, leveraging a lot of these skills that the, the old hardware firms of the, of, of the product world have now become hardware support firms to the software firms of the future, in software being the advice piece, 
who are just building their niches, wanting to build a business, not simply just have a job, and, and leveraging uh, the infrastructure, the, the, the product manufacturing skills, the, the product testing skills that are so crucial for us, for great entrepreneurs to deliver upon. But we haven't seen that. And this is where we were saying and have advised a few institutions here in Australia, when are you going to stand up and say, we want to be the provider of first choice to every independent advisor in Australia? And we get merited by the breadth of our services to allow them to be great advisors in front of the client. When are you going to stand up and say that as compared to clip the ticket on every product they sell? And so without this sort of independent platform ecosystem there, like, I guess I'm sort of, I mean, how do advisory firms sort of go through their growth cycle there? Because I feel like there's, there's a lot that we just rely on for our platforms here in the US that we probably don't even realize we rely on to take for granted until you build in an environment like Australia that doesn't have some of the same platforms. So like, what does it look like as you're just trying to get started as an advisory firm and then begin to to build and scale there? Yeah, and I think it's – and as you and I have shared in, at the previous conferences, I think th- there are specific stages which there are a lot of – particularly the first two stages when, when firms start out and just literally go out there and start being an advisor and get to that $200,000 level. There's lots of support for those people because that's been the traditional – development ground that's been supported by the institutions in the past uh, and then then that person then needs support with the job descriptions and with the the compliance software and with the the hiring and 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 the the, the threads for how they run their businesses and and the forecast for which funds to pick and the and the recommended approved product lists for them to choose from and the and the um, IT experts to help them build pages and so they get to that half a million to a million mark with again a list of systems but then they start getting through the $1 million to $2 million mark, we find that it's not so much the lack of systems, it's just simply the lack of priorities and everything. is. A, and so that's where the institutions have said, you know what, we're good at building firms that get to that $1 or $2 million, and that's that's been their bread and butter. But once the firm gets to that $1 or $2 million, they're then up to left them, well, how do I determine what my priorities are to build my board, to, to figure out how I can maintain growth and culture and keep profitability at least 40% per annum? And they're left to their own devices to then prioritize and drop off sections of their biz base or for their own country towns to build up a separate proposition across the road in a different store. And then that gets them to about $4 million where they can't grow quick enough internally. They have to start bolting on other firms and they buy the accounting group or they might buy the estate planning group, the risk group. And then they've got a business now at right 8 to $10 million. But I think from $2 million on, they've had to do it by themselves. Um, and that's where the business people who are wanting to build advisory businesses – and that's what they want to do. They're, they're business people. They want to build advisory business as compared to an advisor that wants to build a business. And they're both great jobs. No one's better than the other, but it's like being left or right-handed. What's your skill? Uh, those that are skilled in building businesses and want to build an advisory business, they've got a business sense. And those that are great advisors generally get to that 2 million mark or 1 million mark, and they get frustrated as they try to build the business because it's not their skill. But the institution hasn't wanted them to go beyond the relationship they've got with that founder because it keeps them more loyal to that institution. Right. It's, it, I mean, to me, it's, it's the transition that comes when you begin to build a business that's literally beyond yourself as the mm-hmm. advisor, mm-hmm. Um, even kind of a similar threshold. You know, I, I uh, you know, here for advisors, depending on the clientele you work with that, that might start at three to $500,000 revenue at the lower end. It virtually always comes by a million dollars of revenue at the upper end that, just 
you hit your personal capacity. The only possible way to grow is you have to start adding other advisors that can take on some of these clients. And you you grow beyond just a business of yourself serving clients into an actual business of advisors who serve clients that you own and may or may not be one of the advisors. And as soon as you make that transition, as you said, like the the you don't have platform and systems problems. You have like actual business management <laughs> problems. Like you have to hire and train and develop staff and manage people and set priorities for the people in the business. And the natural skill set you need is completely different. You don't have to manage clients. You have to manage staff. We'd say there's one little element there if I could quietly challenge you on. The only way to grow sure. is to lift prices. So we would say before putting on extra team members, lift your pricing to fund it. Mm. You, you can't, and not just a 10% or 20%. And so this is where Dan Sullivan's thinking, which I attended 25 years ago, the whole life, what's the breakthrough price you're working on this quarter? What's the dream price you're working on this year? Whilst what's the minimum price you now need to, can't go below unless it's for pro bono work. And so the way to grow when I get to that million or half a million or 1.5 is firstly to have the courage to go beyond your current thinking about pricing and not in incremental steps of 10%, significantly more. Put that to the client, have the clients confirm the value, and then you've got a base of productivity growth, not just more activity. Interesting. And again, I guess that's in a a retainer fee kind of context, right? And not necessarily saying like you charge, I mean, like I charge 1%, I go back to all my clients and say, hey, I'm charging 1.3 now. Like I, I, yeah. I can only do I can only do those increases for so long before at some point I'm charging three, four, five percent, and even my regulator is going to have something to say about that. Well, again, I think, I think this is where we this is the issue. We're now got our regulators saying you can't charge more than a thousand dollars. Oh my god! You know that sounds Marxist. That sounds communist. It's because again, this value there's a value. It's up to the value of a, some some people to determine what the price is. Are we coming to that? And that's what one of our fears in Australia is, because if you if you want to go to Washington D.C.'s best orthopedic surgeon and you've got a waiting list of six weeks to get in, they're the best. And so no one's articulating to that orthopedic surgeon except the market. Now, let's assume that orthopedic surgeon like you are working in the client's best interest all the time. Then I think this whole – you can charge 4%, uh, and it's not based upon any comparison. Otherwise, they get Michael Kitsis. And I think that's what I keep talking about is that this thing that's locked in stone, the pricing lever, because others will compare or I'll compare or or more fundamentally – Am I worth it? And we don't let the market define that back to you. Or just afraid that I'm going to go back to clients that I've worked with and and get rejected. I mean, how do how do you, particularly when you start talking about this magnitude of fee increase, like you know, go back to all your clients and raise your fees by twenty percent or thirty percent or fifty percent? Like, how do you have that conversation? How do you break that news to a client <laughs> and not have a whole bunch of them, shall we say, react negatively? Yeah, and I guess it's 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 like everything, Michael. It's evolutionary, not revolutionary. And we we only need like it's my golf. If I have one good hit out of the hundred I hit around the golf course, that'll give me back next year, next week. And so we're just looking for little increments. That I was going to go in and charge X. I've I've had an opinion. I've had I've taken the feedback. I can see the work, and I'm going to charge one point five X. And they accepted that. So you so you go. Client by client for clients that you've had significant wins and you think you can justify it for as opposed to just saying, I'm uniformly across the board going to raise my fees for all my clients? The, the language is important and, and we, we try and keep away from the thinking that you have to justify. I think it's more 
you just have to show the value. This is, and again, if I've had those touch points, thanks to the techniques that Bill Backrack or Mitch Anthony or Dan Sullivan have taught us, I've got those touch points to say, is this value for you? I'm not trying to justify it. Because I think the minute we try to justify the work and the why the price is there, you've already on the on the wrong. You already you already lost the. Com- I'm not. I'm simply trying to demonstrate the value. Is this value to you? I'm not, and it's in their best interest. Uh, I'm not trying to do something to see how much the koala can bear, which is a phrase we use out here. But I also think it's evolutionary. Uh, we're not taking it to all our clients. I think that the the harder conversation is sometimes for those clients we've considered pro bono, who've always been there, always always want to keep them there, and when we lift the lid, look under the bonnet. of the client base is pro bono. And that's the conversation of saying, well, you're running a social justice business here or you're trying to run a commercial business. So what do you find most advisors that want to be business owners are like, don't understand? I mean, where are the blocking points that come up? As you you said, like the business owner, the, the ones that think like business owners tend to power through that one or two million revenue phase, the ones that are advisors who were trying to grow a business or have just sort of found themselves growing a business tend to struggle more. Like where where do you find most of those blocking points come up? Because I, I suspect they're quite similar here in the US. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Look, I don't think it's too I, I think the biggest problem is ourselves. I, I think we just fail to see that we are sometimes and our limiting beliefs is the biggest issue. Yeah, my clients won't pay that. Yeah, I'm just not ready for that. Um, it's too far outside comfort zones for me. I'm just not good at that stuff. I know I need to do it. It's ourselves. And I think the business-minded people are more about, this is what I enjoy, This is what I'm, I'm good at this stuff, and they run it with a bit more confidence. Not an arrogance, but a confidence. But I think the biggest challenge is trying to get across to someone who's been is seen by their clients and is truly successful and truly genuine and truly professional to say, look, what you've been doing is great, but what we need to do is a bit better to achieve some of the things that you still consider to be valuable. And when we test and we, we, we wait to see the transcripts that have got different phrases in it, we wait to see the copies of their engagement dollars with different pricing in it, they still come back and have got reasons why they that particular client, we couldn't do it. It's still ourselves every time. So what advice would you give to newer advisors looking down this road who maybe don't want to don't want to get caught in these traps in the future. Oh, it's. It, I, I had this conversation this morning. I, I just say, look, you probably can't remember 1979, but I can. You know, when the PC was released, and um, that that will change the mainframe industry forever. And we're at the same point in 2019. It's it's not the PC this time. It's simply just comprehensive advice. The new platform is being regulated in, or fintech's going to push it. So view it as 1979 and we're going to have 20 years at least of fantastic growth on this new platform. This is the time to be really serving our clients' best interest for all the value you can deliver. Yeah, I, I, I long have been fascinated by the ways that technology sort of indirectly drives these, these changes. You know, as, as we were saying earlier, I think you know, the, there was a time when we were all stockbrokers and then computers showed up and scaled the stockbrokering business and we couldn't get paid for it anymore. So we started selling mutual funds and then the internet showed up and anybody could buy a mutual fund online. So we had to start giving you know, holistic portfolio advice. And now the computers are, or the robo advisors showing up to create the asset allocated portfolios. And, and you know, the, it, it's the technology that keeps nudging us up the line. And it's, and it's always terrifying when we go through those transitions and not everybody survives or navigates them successfully but the 
you know, the, the mutual fund business for most advisors was much better than the stockbroking business. The assets and management business was much better than the mutual fund business. And the advice business that comes next, like I'm, I'm incredibly excited and upbeat about it. But as happens with all these transitions, you know, you, you either move up and build on top of what the technology is going to do or the technology starts to replace you. Yeah, it's, it's great. Exciting. It's, it's the old Chinese, maybe we live in interesting times. It certainly is interesting. So what comes next for your business and just the, the consulting work that you do? Like who, who are you working with and what are you focusing on now? Well, we've, we've, just, we've just had a, a bit of a breakthrough recently, which sort of gives us gives an indication of where we're going. The, we've applied over the last two or three years through a group here called the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission and IP Australia for Australia's first certification mark for professional advice and it's been granted and so we have australia's first certification mark so certification mark in australia is if someone for instance um for instance this is the way to make organic bread they get it certified the process so the independent third party can certify it's it's done in a certain way um or if people call it an organic farm you get it certified at certain standards that are lodged with the authorities and can be debated and so we've got a certification mark on what we call our form of principal advice where there's no real or perceived conflict in the advice it's done in a set way whether i'm sitting with an advisor in one side of the country or the other and so that for us has long been our planning about having an important not only but important milestone for saying we think we think at the moment this sets a bit of a standard for what an advice in this new world of those interested in delivering principal advice to give consumers a clear understanding when i see that label attached to an advisor as a sub-label. It's sort of like the intel inside. And that really excites us um, for us to help more and more people have that. Fascinating. So like, is that is that like an advisor training designation? Like, do I think of this as a contrast to something like certified financial plan or CFP uh, marks? Yeah, I think so. We'll have, we'll have we'll have CFPs, we'll have CPAs, and it's, we may even have engineers who will belong to different. But in terms of the, the form of advice that's delivered from that firm, they'll have a, a, a we we label this to an advisor within. You're not certifying an advisor like giving them a certification. You're you're certifying the the advice like literally the advice process they go through. No, we are certifying an advisor. So we certify not a firm but an advisor to say they are. And so we then we then feed their social media feeds every week. We price their files for them every week. We write white papers with them every month. Um, we do submissions to government. We do press releases with them. We're trying to spread this story about the value of valuable advice. And then we have and then we have consumers coming to us and say, "Well, where do I find these advisors?" And that too is on our website. These people, I mean, there's no kickback to us, of course, because it's one of the key issues. There's no conflict, but. If you see this label, you'll know that you'll get this processed for principal advice uh, without any conflict associated with the delivery of that advice. And so then ultimately you you start building a business of marketing to consumers that you've got this certification mark for professional advice and try to encourage them to seek out advisors who have your certification. Yes, and we're, and we're not an association and not trying to be one. We're, we're simply saying, we're not saying this is the monopoly in any way, shape or form. We're simply saying if advisors are looking for principle-based advice and there's no perceived or real conflict with the delivery of that advice of a product or a process or evaluation of a business model in any way conflicts with the the advisor's um, environment then we'll we'll certify that every year so i guess 
roughly akin to getting, I guess, getting certified here that you're a fee only. Yeah, I think, so. I think so. Aren't receiving any other kinds of commissions or other remuneration. Yeah, and it's 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 for principal advice. So that's that's fairly exciting for us. The growth of our community uh, beyond the 120 advisors we've got so far uh, is exciting for us. It's just, but it is. I think the other thing, uh, I think you may have been alluding to on a couple of podcasts. It, it's it's a 20 year objective. We've got a long long way to go on this. So as we as we wrap up, you know, this is a a podcast about success, and and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means different things to different people. And so as as you look at what you're building going forward, I'm I'm just wondering like how do you define success at this point? I think if we've helped contribute to eighty percent of Australians having access to valuable advice in twenty years' time. I love that. That is that is concrete. That is targeted. Like that's a <laughs> that's a smart goal. That's a, that's specific and measurable and achievable. Like that uh 80, 80% yeah. of Australians having access to advice in 20 years. Yeah, and I think I'm going off Russ Allen Prince's numbers there because I think Russ is right. There's a certain number of people that will only take their own advice, and I think there's a certain number of people that will don't don't take advice at all. But I think there's – and it's a big, hairy objective there, that, and that's where the rough 80% came from. And it's not saying they'll all get certainly advice any stretch or match, but by, hopefully in 20 years' time there'll be – other brand names doing similar things, um, seeing that this is a viable model and more and more Australians have access to what I see as the equivalent of the medical profession and they're having less arguments in their marriages and they're having greater hopes with their small businesses or what they hope to achieve, not falling as much as we are today to the financial behaviours which have been pushed by, in some ways, just our own behavioural traits that don't really handle money or wide for the money conversation that well. well amen. I love, the, I love the vision. I hope we can see a similar evolution here in the u.s over time as well i think our our challenge probably in both markets there and here uh i don't know if we have enough advisors to advise that many people mm, we don't we don't no we don't i guess that just makes it all the more great opportunity <laughs> yeah that's the 1979 the pc industry we don't have enough pc people you know i think but we'll get there well thank you for joining us and just sharing some of these perspectives around, uh, I think, interesting parallels between what's happening and happened in Australia and, and maybe what's coming here in the U.S. And, and just thinking through, you know, what is what does pricing look like? How should we be pricing our services and the those tensions that come up between, you know, well, what, happened, what happens if you charge more and some of your clients say no, but mm -hmm. some of your clients say yes? And Michael, thank you to you. I think you may not know, again, and this is where the same brush applies to you, you're probably undervaluing the value you are adding by services such as this, which is, I know by the those that had listened to it and my team and my clients that listened to it, you are doing a tremendous service in promoting the conversations um, and building a community of conversation well beyond uh, your microphone and your desk where you're sitting at now. We're well, not just giving you know, knowledge, you're actually helping people understand experiences um, of really valuable advisors. And that's an incredible value service you're providing. Well, thank you. I, I hope it's helpful. I know we have uh, quite a listenership in Australia and the uh -huh. UK and a couple other countries as well beyond the here in the US. So I, I hope it's food for thought for everyone around the world. Uh -huh. It is. Well, thank you again, Jim, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.